You'll turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This morning's sermon is An Old Man's Wisdom, part two. Our key words for our worshipers in training are patient, proud, and spirit. If you remember last week, we looked at Solomon's wisdom and this reality that Solomon, as he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes, is an older man and he's looking back over his life and as he looks at the life that he lived, he realizes that much of his pursuit, much that he sought after was vanity, it was meaningless. It had no purpose, that he was seeking purpose, he was seeking meaning, he was seeking joy in life, in everything that the world could offer and found that none of it could satisfy. And so I presented to you Solomon in these verses as we sit down with him as an old man, with all of his wisdom that he has gained, and as we sit with him in a coffee shop, he looks across the table and explains to us his wisdom. He gives to us that which he has learned from a life that has been lived, mistakes that have been made, sins that have been committed, and he's calling us to pursue wisdom to pursue wisdom. So real quick, I want to remind us of what we looked at. Remember he said in verse 1 of chapter 7, a good name is better than precious ointment. That what is external maybe matters a little bit, but in the end, godly character, a good name, godly character, is what is of utmost importance. That as God does a work in our lives and transforms us, that all that is in our lives externally, we have a great song about all the things of the world seem strangely dim. All that is outside of me begins to fade in its importance, but all that God is doing in me and through me is of utmost importance. That a godly name, a godly character is far more important than precious ointment. Remember, he reminded us that funerals are better than birthdays. What does that mean? Remember, he said that the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. Why? Never in our times of feasting, in our times of rejoicing, in our times of party, Do we sit down to think about the reality of eternity? And yet when we gather in the house of mourning, we are reminded yet again that death is on the horizon. Life ends, and there is something yet to come. What is it as we contemplate that? It is far better for us to think of all that is to come in eternity than to simply seek to laugh ourselves through life. Sorrow, grief, pain, frustration, anger, all of these things are used to grow us in this life. Remember, he also pointed us to the reality that the rebuke of friends, the rebuke of those who love us, as he says in Proverbs, the wounds of a faithful friend are a great thing. It's a great blessing to be challenged in our sin by those who love us. And we ended last week his statement about the laughter of fools, the crackling of the briars under the pot. There's a lot of noise, but there's not a lot of substance. There's not any heat from the fire. So it's void of substance. The life and the laughter of a fool is void of meaning, of purpose, There is no seriousness to their life, and that is a deadly thing. Laughter is good for a season, but a seriousness about life is of vital importance. It is important that we consider our frailty. It is important that we consider eternity with a seriousness. 
If we fail to do so, then we will laugh ourselves to the grave. And there will be no more laughing beyond the grave. And so now we turn to verses 7 through 10, and Solomon is going to continue giving us his wisdom. The first thing we're going to look at in verses 7 through 10 are four hindrances of our spiritual growth. There are four things that Solomon points out that will hinder us in our ability to grow spiritually. Let's begin in verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So the first hindrance to our spiritual growth is hardship, oppression. It can be defined as hardship or, or weight. So life in a fallen world will come up against some very heavy weight, some extreme hardship, some oppression. Times when everything in our lives that seems right all of a sudden seems wrong. And so what does it cause? Stress, anxiety, confusion. We start asking a lot of questions. What is this about? How did this happen? Why is this happening? And in times like this, as we're asking these questions, as we're seeking reprieve, There's a huge temptation to accept a bribe, a way out, seemingly anyway. Hardships and oppression have a way of making temptations seem a lot sweeter than they did when everything seemed to be going okay. When the weight of the world seems to be just too much, the weight of circumstances begins to bribe the heart with sin and with temptation, and so we are quick to find the easy way out because everything seems so disoriented about our lives. If I just do this, if I just give in to this sin, I know it's sin, but everything will be better on the other end. The sin is worth the supposed outcome. I've heard a few times from individuals who have said, I know it's sin, but I think it's necessary, and I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Wow. It makes so little of the grace of God and forgiveness. We just take advantage of God's grace when we say, It's sin, but I'll do it anyway because he'll just forgive me. Don't be so quick to think that he will just forgive you if your heart is set on sin and there is no conviction. Is that ever the case with you? That sin, the bribe, the bribe seems sweet at the time because we simply want a way out. Falling for the bribe, seeking after this thing that will, we think in the minute, relieve us of this oppression, is never better than enduring the oppression. Why? Because giving in and doing wrong blatantly will damage your heart and it will damage the way that you relate to God. You will have regret, you will have shame, and depending on what the sin is, there will be other consequences. And so Solomon's wisdom to us in this first verse we're looking at is, don't give in to the bribe when oppression comes. You'll be poisoning the well. You will be draining vitality from your life, and repercussions from your sin go far beyond that moment when it seems okay. Endure hardships. Don't allow them to be a hindrance, but recognize, as we'll talk about in a little bit, that hardship comes at the hand of a sovereign God for your good. Secondly, verse 8. 
Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Our second hindrance to spiritual growth is impatience. Solomon is instructing us to have a long-term view of life, of all things. This is not a pessimistic statement that he's making. He's saying, look to the end product. It's better to understand the end product. And if so, patience will increase in us in the face of difficulty, in the face of hardship. If we know what is coming, then we will be patient through those times. Now, there are many things that do not seem promising at first, but they turn out well in the end. Many of you have probably gone through the process of building a house. Some of you are home builders, so you've done that many times. If all you're presented with is a lot with a bunch of trees and roots on it, and you're thinking, I'm going to live here in five, six months, depending on who's building your house, maybe a year or two, it's hard to imagine that what's trees now is going to be a foundation, is going to be a structure, is going to be something that I'm going to live and dwell in and make a place of refuge and evangelism as I seek to be hospitable to others. If I have no long-term view, if I have no blueprint at least to look at and consider what the end is going to be, it can be very frustrating and it seems to be never-ending. And I don't just show up on the site with some boards and some nails and a few guys and say, go at it. Well, go at what? Just build a house. Well, what do you want it to look like? How are we going to do this? I just use the tools I gave you and do it. How frustrating. But when we have an end goal in sight, when we have an end goal in mind, when we can look at something and say, this is what is to come, this is what it will be, it increases our patience. I don't know if anyone's ever built a house without things going wrong in the midst of it at some point. Something will happen. But we know what the end result will be. It's worth it. Be patient. All's well that ends well in God's gracious plan because we know that for those who love God and are called according to His purposes, He works all things together for our good. Romans 8.28 The opposite of this is that the initial sweetness of sin tastes good. It seems appetizing, but in the end it is very bitter. And so in our impatience, we run to sin, which really is a bitterness. So Solomon is looking at life committed to the Lord. And his point is, look to the goal. Don't look at the hurdles and the obstacles and all the trials that are in your way. Look to the end goal. We'll get over those. We'll get through those. But there's an end in sight. The trial of our faith, after all, is designed to produce patience. This is what James tells us in chapter 1. So our trials have a purpose, and it's the very thing that Solomon's pointing to right now. Patience. And, and the result is greater eternal triumph. We grow in the Lord when we grow in patience. If we are patient to the end, as a child of faith, we will triumph. We will see great glory given to the Lord as a result of our lives. And so Solomon draws this contrast that patience is greater than pride. Pride is essentially self-worship. Pride may get us out of the starting blocks, but only patience can see us through to the end. Remember when God's people, they returned to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. What did they do? The first thing they did, they built another temple. 
as construction began, quite frankly, some people were doubting whether it would be very impressive at all. But the prophet Zechariah promised them in chapter 4 and verse 10, Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. Although the new temple was starting small, by the grace of God, it would end up being better than its beginning. Now often we see this principle worked out in our own lives. A few simple Steps of obedience eventually lead to stronger lives of prayer, greater generosity, and giving to the kingdom. I think about this principle a lot with, uh, with my daughter. She has so much to learn in life. So I was thinking through this last night. She was standing next to me, and my, I was sitting in my chair. She kept sticking her hand in my pocket and saying, Where'd my hand go? Now look, that's cute now when you're two. But that's not what we're looking for at 10 or 20 years old. If she's still playing the same games with the same toys at the same intellectual level that she's at today, there's a problem, right? I want to see her grow more to be more mature, and finally, by God's grace, I'm praying for this every day that she will be able to offer useful service to the kingdom of God. And until then, patience. We're on catechism question number two. The end site is number 114, but we still have to cover three through 113 to get there. It takes time. It takes patience. But the end is in sight. She's small. Her knowledge is very limited. But I hope there will be a day when she is able to articulate the true riches of God's kingdom, God's grace, God's love, God's justice, and God's mercy. If I don't have that end in sight, asking over and over and over again, Eva, who made you? That can get very tedious. That can be very meaningless. There's purpose, and that purpose for me is patience and endurance because there is an end in sight. We see this most clearly in God's plan of salvation. What do we see in Bethlehem? A young bride with her older husband, a humble stable, a few lowly shepherds, and a baby in a manger. Who would ever imagine that this was the beginning of an empire? That that baby would become the king of kings. And that by offering himself as a sacrifice, he would gain the forgiveness of sins for people from all the nations. Yet the end was much better than the beginning. What began with the coming of the Christ child will end with the consummation of God's eternal kingdom. It's a great reality. Look at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Our third hindrance to spiritual growth is frustration. This is really an extension of the previous. If we grow impatient, we grow frustrated. Really, this is what happens when things don't go your way. Our tendency is outrage. Self-imposed justice. If you don't like someone or something, no problem. Let's do the American thing. Lawsuit. Perhaps it's more personal. Perhaps it's sending a snippy little let-me-tell-you-something email or post a not-so-subtle don't-mess-with-me message on Facebook for all the world to see. It feels more satisfying and fulfilling than to patiently overlook an offense, especially when the you-tell-em crowd adds their two cents to what you're saying to help you justify your angry rants. Frustration has become justification for instant vengefulness. The Bible repeatedly 
asserts that anger is bound up with foolishness in the human heart. One's ability to be angrily clever in their snippy, frustrated comments is not a mark of biblical wisdom and godliness. It's foolish and destructive to others, to your own spiritual growth, and ultimately and most importantly to the glory of Christ on display. So frustration as a result of impatience and anger is a great hindrance to our spiritual growth. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. The fourth hindrance is a good old days mentality. I think it's rare. I can't say I've met one. I think it's rare to meet a guy in his 30s who says... Uh, back in high school, I was uh, I was on the basketball team, but by on the basketball team, what I really mean is that I went to every practice and I handed out water on their breaks. I didn't have a uniform. I didn't run drills. I was never in the games. I was just kind of there. Right? I've I've never met that guy in his thirties who is looking back to those days. In fact, it seems like the older we get, the better we were back then. Like every 40-year-old out there that's ever played any sport in high school was all universe and was being recruited by 500 different schools. So I'm going to be honest. Here was my experience with basketball. I was on the C team. And that's the team they put everyone else on who didn't get picked for the other two teams. And even on the C team, they said, would you rather be the guy who hands out water to the girls' varsity team? (laughs) I remember one practice, they were running a scenario with the coach, and he looks at me and he says, three seconds on the clock, down by two, We're at the foul line. What are you going to do? I said, well, coach, I'm going to scoot down to the end of the bench so I have a better sight at what's going on on the court. (laughs) I didn't play much. (laughs) But in all seriousness, Solomon reminds us of the foolishness of this mentality that there were good old days. He's not saying that history isn't important. It is. He's not saying that it's wrong to remember past joys and successes. That's okay. But it becomes a hindrance when our discontentment now causes our eyes to turn back to those supposed good old days. The golden era. Longing for the past. Let me just say, there's only been two chapters in the history of the world that were the good old days. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. After Genesis 3, there were no more good old days. There are no more good old days until all things have been redeemed fully in Christ Jesus. One of Israel's continual failures was this very thing. They looked at their current circumstances Consider the fact that the Israelites coming out of Egypt saw the miraculous work of God more readily than anybody else in the history of mankind. They saw plagues come upon a people that they lived in and around and not them. They saw the Spirit of God sweep through in that tenth plague and kill the firstborn of every family but not theirs. They saw an evil, wicked Pharaoh allow them to be released from bondage, to go into the desert. And when they came against the sea, he split the sea and they walked through it on dry land. And then he destroyed the army. He gave them water from rocks. He gave them manna to eat from heaven. We can go on and on and on and on. And in the midst of all of this, what did the Israelites do? When things got a little tough, they wanted to look back and say, I kind of liked Egypt. I liked being in bondage and slavery. 
that seems like that is more pleasing to me now than this. But, you know, we all do that. All of us are prone to that. We tend to want to think back to what we assumed were the happiest days of our lives. They're not. Looking that direction is a hindrance to our spiritual growth. Because the greatest is yet to come when we are in Christ Jesus. So I want to take these four things, these four hindrances to spiritual growth and help us get the big picture of what Solomon's driving at here. First, how does it affect us personally? And second of all, how does it look to us as a church? Because the call has been issued by Solomon now that we will have the end in sight. So we're driving toward this goal. We're driving toward the end. And in doing so, our patience increases, our anger decreases, and we stop looking back to the so-called glory days and look forward to the day of glory. I want to help us apply this to our day-to-day with a few examples, and maybe it will help us work through this. And we'll end with verses 11 through 14 in just a moment. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding I've preached at, there's something you hear me refer to time and time again, and it's directly from Ephesians chapter 5. And that is that marriage is about, in the end, physically displaying and working out the implication of Christ's love for His bride, the church. So if I'm looking to the end goal of marriage, for example... I'm looking at loving my wife with sacrificial love, with the same love, the same commitment, the same sacrifice and passion that Christ has for His church. Her end goal in marriage is to submit to that loving, servant-oriented leadership. And in the end, when all of this is done, the ultimate purpose is fulfilled. Christ is exalted, Christ is glorified because Christ and His love for His people has been put on display for all the world to see. So the end goal of marriage is not romantic dates and flowers and champagne and long walks on the beach. There's nothing wrong with these things and it's great for couples to do, but if that's not part of our marriage for whatever reason... It doesn't mean our purpose of marriage isn't being fulfilled. Listen, this is important. I think we forget this. Marriage isn't about you. It's about Christ and His glory. Let's take it a step further. Marriage is not mainly about being in love. Listen, I am absolutely 100% in love with my wife, and I can't imagine it any other way. But more important than that is that we are striving to live together in a way that makes Christ look glorious. Even if that means that there are times when we don't feel in love with each other. I think there's so many married people out there looking for the Loch Ness Monster. That man or that woman that isn't like our man or woman, when we meet them, all troubles and all of our ills will disappear and the struggle and the pain and the difficulty will dissolve under this magical, amazing love. But why is it the Loch Ness Monster we're looking for? Because it doesn't exist. It's a Hollywood pipe dream that doesn't exist. There will never, ever, ever be another human being that will fulfill you, will heal you, will make you feel like all is well in the world 100% of the time. It won't happen. Why? Because life gets difficult when two sinners live in the same house together. Some days are flowers and walks on the beach, but others seem to be a constant string of really intense fellowship moments, right? Iron sharpens iron. And it's a really violent process. All our weaknesses are exposed. What looks in public to be strength is really exposed in our home as a weakness. There's no place to hide. But listen, here's my point. The end goal of marriage is not my happiness. 
I know every chick flick out there wants to portray otherwise. And a lot of well-meaning people want to say, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. But you know what? That's not all that matters. The end goal isn't happiness. It's the glory of Christ in sacrificial love, which means I lay down my life in service to my wife as Christ has done for the church, regardless of how she responds. So why do I bring this up? Because this is exactly Solomon's point. If you don't have the right end in mind when it comes to marriage, we're going to look back to something else as the glory days. I'm going to get stuck in frustration and anger. I'm going to be impatient in times of hardship because I'm thinking this whole deal is about my happiness, not about the glory of Christ. Look, if you're single, I'm not saying marry someone you hate so you can really glorify God. (laughs) But it takes a lot of work. There are a lot of tough times. It's about making much of Jesus and his relationship to his bride. So when we have the right end in mind, when things get difficult, patience increases. Anger decreases. Not, I remember when I was single. Life was so much easier. You know, it seems to me that a lot of married people want to be single and a lot of single people want to be married because... People think that troubles disappear. Neither is true. Neither is reality. The Scriptures call us to be content and to strive to live in your circumstances in a way that makes Jesus look as glorious as He truly is. How about children? Parents, what is your responsibility to your children? Your number one responsibility. Think about it. Let me give you a hint. It's not behavior management, so they are little moral people that keep their shirts tucked in on Sunday morning. There's an element of that that is important, but your number one responsibility, what is it? To impart to your children the glory of Christ. That's hard work. But it's an awesome responsibility that can be an incredibly fulfilling thing. Like, Right now, my daughter again, we're trying to teach a two-year-old about honoring God by not lying. So her vocabulary right now is basically a repeat of everything that she hears. We read her a lot of books, we talk to her a lot, but getting across to her the difference between telling the truth and telling a lie is very difficult. But just last night, I was in the other room. Little Eva lied to her mother, so Felicia sat her down and talked to her about lying. And unprompted, Eva said, God is truth. (laughs) Awesome. She has a book called God is Truth. And so she hears the key words and begins to connect the dots. That's incredibly fulfilling. But look, I don't have the end goal in mind of imparting the glory of Christ to her if I don't lay the building blocks for her so that eventually we can move on to some of the deeper things of God that I really want for her to know. I'm not saying, I'm not going to see her, uh, her lying as an opportunity to impart Christ. I'm just going to be impatient and frustrated. But God has given me the responsibility to train her in these important things. We need to talk truth. We need to talk theology. And in the end, the Bible says one generation will commend God's work to the next. Parents, that's your job. That's the end goal. And with that goal in mind, the sins of your children are wonderful opportunities to increase in patience, to decrease in anger, and to impart Christ instead of looking backwards and saying, life was so much easier without children. The end goal is vitally important. So what's this look like as a church? Church people have a really, really bad habit of looking back, right? (laughs) We used to do this. Back when this. That's not how it used to be. And on and on and on. 
Egypt always seems so much better for some reason, especially when things get tough. Now, look, I've said it several times, and I really, really mean it. I hope you know I plan on being here for at least 30 to 40 years as a pastor. So if that sounds incredibly frightening to you, I'd suggest bailing now because I'm only going to get older and grouchier. (laughs) But listen, there will be times, and Lord willing, he doesn't kill me tomorrow, there will be times in that span that things will be gut-wrenchingly painful for all of us to endure together. We're sinners. We're trying to live life together in community. Loving and serving one another tends to typically go quite well, but when we start to get to the hard stuff, holding each other accountable, like we talked about last week, confronting sin, walking through church discipline, things get tough. And a lot of you know that already. So what do we do? Well, we can look backwards and long for past days, I can tell you, I've been to a lot of churches that want to tell stories about why their sanctuary seats 800 people. Because back in the day, there were that many people here, but now there's only 50. I would suggest there's only 50 because they're still looking back at those 800. Nobody's being baptized. Nobody's lives are being changed. They're living for what was, but not seeing, most importantly, what is to come. So when things get difficult and we start to rub one another in the wrong way, it'll happen. What do we do? Do we just give up? Do we just move on? Do we just go to the next show in town? No, we look to the end. Why are we here? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to do? To worship God with joy. To love our neighbors. To see transformed lives and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. It's a pretty simple mission statement, right? I promise you, the second we take off our focus from that, we're dead. We might keep limping on for a few years, but we're already dead. When we are seeking to live life together as the body of Christ, if we're not keeping our eyes on the goal together, we will grow impatient, we will grow frustrated, we will grow angry, and we will be very selfish, and nothing of our mission will be accomplished. We have got to remember what we're doing here. God is still working His plan. So I assume in that, that the best is yet to come. We have to look forward and not backwards because our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's Paul's words in Romans 13. Now, remember the point of this section is Solomon imparting wisdom to us in his old age. He's helping us to see the importance of wisdom, the importance of rejecting foolishness and frivolous lives. So he finishes out these proverbial statements addressing the benefits of wisdom. Look at verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom uh, preserves the life of him who has it. Now, we're going to feel a bit like Solomon is contradicting past statements because we looked a few weeks ago at Solomon saying that wealth is a dead end. How much money you have doesn't matter. That's not the point of life. But remember, he was addressing that Money is so often a replacement for God. He did not say that money doesn't provide some form of assistance, that it's wrong to have a lot of it, or that we shouldn't seek to have some of it. Solomon realizes that for the wise man who knows what the proper place for money is, it can really be a significant benefit. We need money to pay our bills, but we also need wisdom. We need money to be generous, to provide an inheritance for our children, but we need wisdom. So he's saying if you get an inheritance, that's a good thing. It's helpful. Things go bad, you get sick, you lose your job, whatever it is, it can be a big help. In Ecclesiastes 10.19, we're going to see where Solomon wrote, money answers everything. 
You, you said it was nothing. Well, you're saying it answers everything. It seems like a huge departure from all that he has said, but it's not. He's addressing the reality that there is a tremendous usefulness for that gift when it's properly utilized, when it's properly stewarded. A lot can be done for God's glory with money when we have the right perspective with the desire to advance the kingdom of God and see the glory of Christ proclaimed. Solomon doesn't stop there. He also presses in on this reality, which will bring what he has said all together. Wise people also see wisdom as being equally important as that money, that inheritance. Because if you have a lot of money and you don't have a lot of wisdom, you will lose it all and it will actually destroy your life. He told us that previously. He said, I've seen another evil under the sun. God gives a man wealth, honor, possessions, but does not enable him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger feasts on them. Fools who get lots of money lose it quickly, and they never enjoy it because someone else takes it. Wisdom is a shelter. Things get hard and arduous and complicated. Wisdom gets you through. Wisdom is your compass. Wisdom enables you to make it. Wise people seek wisdom above all, and they embrace it as a great gift from God. Wisdom is a species of wealth that transcends the -the under-the-sun world and reaches to heaven from the Lord. And it equips the believer with resources to live a full and God-honoring life. So what's the key to that wisdom? Verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Wisdom comes when we take notice of the work of God. Solomon is continuing to drive this point that he has made several times. Our lives are under the sovereignty of God. You might look at your own life and realize, you know, I feel like I've had a long journey with crooked sections in the past. It's complex. It's difficult. It's hard to know sometimes what direction to go. This job or that one? Marry this person or that one? Do I serve in this way or that way? Whatever it is, there's a lot of bends, there's a lot of forks, a lot of questions, and sometimes a lot of confusion. But pay attention to what Solomon says. Who makes it all crooked? God. God has made things in your life crooked. Let me be very clear here. This isn't always popular. But if this isn't the case, if God's not actively involved in the crooked turns in your life, then you cannot rightly call Him sovereign. God does it, and it's for your good. A lot of fools are seeking to straighten out life. Don't try to straighten out what God has made crooked. It's futility. You don't get to change the shape of the road, but you, if you want to get from point A to point B, you have to drive on it. So that means if it's crooked, you're driving on a crooked road. If it bends, you better learn how to turn left. Fools seek to change this while the wise learn to navigate through it because God has done it. Now remember, life was straight for two chapters in Genesis, but because of sin, because of the fall of mankind, it is now crooked. Who can straighten what God has made crooked? No one. Now, there will be a day at Jesus' second coming when he redeems all things and makes all things new. And the crooked will be made straight again. But for now, you and I are crooked people in a crooked world. And if we are wise, we are seeking to walk in that while we hold on tightly to God. He finishes verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. When times are good, rejoice. When times are bad, consider this. God did that as well. You can try as hard as you'd like to not have bad days, but God controls that, I promise you. And those bad days are coming. So what are you going to do with them? 
A wise man will never kick against the ghost. Will a man be able to bend the world in a different direction than the Almighty has? This central doctrine in the book of Ecclesiastes must sink deeply into our souls. Is it crooked? God did it. Why? Well, the closest we have to an answer is Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? The ultimate answer is that God does all things to glorify His name, to exalt His majesty. But regardless of why, the fact remains that the Bible affirms numerous times God's sovereignty over all that's crooked. He truly is the only Lord. And so we receive our prosperity as it's from God, because guess what? It is from God. But in the day of adversity, we are also to remember our doctrine on the sovereignty of God. He has made both days. The Lord brings the springtime and the Lord brings the earthquakes. The Lord gives the birthday and the Lord assigns the day of mourning. Christianity in our culture is filled with the theology that God never does bad things but only does good things. So God makes rainbows and kittens and cotton candy and not lightning, fire, and tornadoes. That is a very, very small God. We need to set our eyes on God like the Apostle Paul in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Glory be to him forever. Amen. So what we see with our eyes does not settle the matter. We don't know what's coming. So what do we do? We seek wisdom to get us through. Here's the point and we're done. Solomon is driving hard and fast for joy. Joy enables us, whatever the circumstance, whatever the season, to get through it with a Godward focus. It doesn't mean we'll always be smiles or even that we'll feel happiness, but it means that we are resting, we are satisfied, we are content. And that contentedness is in Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the sin that hinders everything that so easily entangles. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about that. Jesus went to die on the cross for my sins with what? Joy. It doesn't look like that. He's in pain. He's suffering. But that joy is not in his circumstance. His joy is beyond the circumstance. His joy is ahead in what is to come as a result of his circumstance. Resurrection, forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation. God made Christ to be sin. Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb, God made him to be sin on my behalf that I, that everyone who believes would in Christ become the righteousness of God. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Jesus took upon himself our sin and died the death we deserve after the living of a life that we were commanded to live but couldn't. He took on my penalty, he took on your penalty, and he grants to his people his righteous standing before the Father. Were the circumstances pretty? Did they look like joy at the time? Does it seem wise that a father willfully killed his son? 
But Jesus conquers sin and death. He raises from the dead and he actually accomplishes salvation for us. There's a lot of joy in that. There's incredible, abundant, lasting joy for what Jesus has accomplished. We have to look to that. That's the Christian life. That's what I seek and I hope and I pray for all of you, Jesus. That's how we get there. I want to call on all of us to repent of sin in our lives and foolishness, to turn to Jesus and seek wisdom. He promised you that he would give wisdom if you ask for it so that you can navigate through this life. And when we're in hard days, we don't just sit there like a fool cursing God. We realize, as Job did, you know what? Some days are good. Some days are bad. All days are from the Lord. I need wisdom to get through so that I can experience true joy in Christ. I hope we can do that together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that you have given us from your word. Thank you for joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you help us to not be hindered in our spiritual growth because in the midst of hardship and oppression that we take the bribe, that we grow impatient, that we grow frustrated, and that we're always looking back to something else instead of looking ahead to what is to come. Help us to have the heart and mind of Christ who endured the cross with joy because he knew the outcome. He in his resurrection was the outcome. Help us to look to that outcome, that you would be glorified and that we would experience true and lasting joy, that our lives not be dictated by our circumstances. Our lives be dictated but the joy that we have in Christ Jesus because of what he has accomplished on our behalf is so good to be called a child of God. I pray that for all who are here this morning. I pray for lasting and abiding joy even in the midst of great trial that you would be glorified in and through us that we would rest and be fulfilled. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.